Yeah, so the name Mother Tree comes from um, a book called Finding the Mother Tree, which is written by a scientist called Susan Simard, a Canadian. And she discovered that trees and forests and trees of different species share nutrients with each other, which I just, it completely blew my mind that you had these, what I, what we'd originally thought were competitive species, you know, oak trying to outcompete beech to get the most sunlight on its leaves. They're actually cooperating. They're supporting each other. And it's, it's absolutely magnificent. So oak will pass the nutrients that, beech needs to thrive and beech will pass the nutrients that oak needs to thrive because they're both able to create different types of nutrients right their differences actually support each other and the mother trees in particular were the tended to be the biggest trees of the forest who were able to support the most other trees the seeds of the mother tree that had landed within the kind of mother trees root range they were also able to support the most protect from the sunlight when it was too sunny, give more rain when that tree needed it. You know, it was like they understood the support system. Kia ora. Welcome to Humans at Work. I'm Jules, your host. Thanks for joining me and our latest guest. And thanks for taking some time in your day to indulge your curiosity about other people and their humanness. If your thirst is unquenched after this, check out humansatwork.org. Now let's begin. Welcome, Dan. Thank you very much for joining us on uh, your morning and my evening. Can we start by you introducing who you are, where you are, and who makes up your family? Hi, Jules. Thanks for the welcome. Really great to be here. So I'm Dan. I'm the founder and CEO of Mother Tree. I uh, live in Bratislava in Slovakia. And who makes up my family? So my wife, Jules, who, who's a Slovak, which is the kind of short story of why we're, why we're here. And my son, Theo, uh, we've got a two-year-old son. And do you have any pets? We don't, we don't. We'd love to have a dog uh, when we're, I guess when we're a bit older. I'm already fairly old. We, we both run businesses, so we kind of, we feel like at some point we'll have a dog, but we'll, perhaps we've got a little bit more time. Well, you've got a two-year-old. It's kind of like having a dog, if my memory serves me correctly. What's it like being a, an, a sort of first-time parent with the the terrible twos? Gosh, it's an absolute, it's an absolute journey. It's really funny. My wife and I talk about this quite a lot. We used to very unfairly sort of judge parents for you know their screaming toddler and we were like oh, we'll never we'll never be that you know our toddler will never scream and he's he's got the loudest scream of anyone it feels now it's great he, he's an absolute wonder but there's definitely different stages right so the first six weeks I was just this complete wreck had no idea what to do wouldn't even put a t-shirt on him without fearing I was going to break him and then you watch the nurses in the hospital with him and they're just like throwing him about they're like I'm like oh okay he's not He's not this fragile thing. He's just a baby. It's fine. And yeah, you sort of get used to it and figure out how to change the nappies and stuff. And then I, I'm quite a nervous dad, whereas my wife's quite a relaxed mum. So I'm the one who tends to be sort of cotton running him a bit, a bit too much, I suspect. But no, it's great. 
That's interesting, actually, that you're the you're the nervous one because you're out there setting up these businesses and doing all this stuff globally and being on screens or whatever. And when it comes to a tiny human, they reduce you to nerves. Yeah, I mean, it's not the only feeling, luckily. And I'm I'm definitely I'm definitely getting better as he gets older and more robust and kind of more. He can just sort of think for himself a bit more. I guess I'm increasingly less nervous. But but yeah, I think I mean that's it. I hadn't ever made the connection between my business and my son in that way. But yeah, I think I'm I'm more aware of the kind of where he is and and slightly more shadowing I think than uh, than my wife. Do you find that your businesses are less like your babies since you've had your own baby? Gosh, that's an interesting question. It's just so different. I mean, I've had businesses that that have well I mean look after my bills was this incredible success story and then I've had others good company which didn't work out and we ended up giving quite a lot of the funding back for that one I mean it was it was a charity so you know I've had kind of successes and failures I guess parenting is kind of like that you have ultimately the success is like the kid has got through the day like that is where the bar has reached now um but yeah you know we do some things well and some things can ultimately hope by the time he gets to 18 he can think for himself and he's a he's a decent human and I guess that's kind of I guess it's kind of similar to companies I'd never made the connection I guess you kind of each day you just it's a series of successes and failures and you hope by the end of the day this the business is slightly better than it was at the start of the day and you look back in a number of years and, and you've achieved something but I don't really have that perspective day to day. You're kind of just in the grind, right? You're just trying to make it work. Yeah, uh, yeah. It is similar. I'd never made the connection. That's really interesting. I mean, I think maybe that maybe I'm projecting because I've got, you know, I've I've got two businesses and a third that I run um, with a, a business partner. And when I think about how much time I spend thinking about their health and their development and what's going to work well and what risks they're going to be facing, it's kind of like parenting, you know, particularly as as kids start to explore the world, which two-year-olds are starting to do, and it only gets worse and more scary for the parents, is that, you know, to a certain extent, you're, you're kind of thinking ahead. They're going into this situation. What are the things that are going to happen? What can I do to prepare them for that? You know, what's my role as a parent and how am I adapting? And I find in my businesses that I'm constantly thinking, oh, look, you know, when I'm in this situation with this client or um, in uh, developing this idea, what's my role going to be versus other people's roles, whether they're in my team or their partners or, you know, um, partner organizations. And I've started thinking how alike that is to the thinking that you do once you take that step back from parenting and you think, okay, I've got to be the one to adapt now because the the kids are doing their own thing. Like they're developing, they're growing. The parents then have to adapt. You can't stay still. So I was probably projecting for, you know, over to you about how I think about it. No, I think that's true. I think there is this kind of constant element of adapting and what does the business need at this point and yeah I think that is the same with parenting you know the kind of role and responsibilities of a for a six for, to look after a six-week-old are very different to a two-year-old and I'm sure will be different to a six-year-old and it's really similar to the company yeah I mean I was doing absolutely everything with the exception of the engineering work on day one of mother tree 
and my world has already dramatically changed. You know, we're, we're not that we were kind of a year and a half into this journey, not even. So, yeah, and no, I see that I hadn't I hadn't ever reflected that way. But, yeah, you're definitely kind of constantly adapting. How can how can I fit best into this to make this succeed as, as best that I can? I want to delve into Mother Tree in a minute. I just wanted to reflect that one of the things that my friends and I talk about um, every year around the time that our kids' um, birthdays, um, you know, when, when the kids have their birthdays, is we tend to say to each other, we've done okay, they're still alive. Um, you know, because I've got a, I've got a, some really close friends that I got to know through antenatal group. Um, and it doesn't matter how often we meet or not meet when we do meet, we're kind of reflecting on how hard it was last year. And this year it's, it's just as hard, you know, you hope that it gets, it gets easier. Um, but one of the things we congratulate ourselves on is that actually we have done sufficient that they are actually still going, still alive, still doing what they need to. Cause sometimes when you're parenting, that's the most that you can aim for in the exhaustion and you know the confusion of the everyday yeah I'm glad I'm not alone on that one <laughs> I think having twins uh teaches you very quickly you're either going to be a nervous wreck or you're going to have to let some things go and I can remember when the twins were small babies having to do some things that were probably looked down upon by other parents or parenting gurus but that as a parent of twins you just have to do you know if you want to go to the bathroom or do any kind of laundry or whatever you have to put the babies down um you know you can't actually feed and change and look after both of them at the same time when you're single-handedly so you come up with sort of hacks if you like for how you can keep one baby safe while you're doing something with the other baby or both babies safe while you're doing something for you. I can remember putting the babies in their car seats and wedging them into this very small little bathroom that we had so that I could watch them while I showered and not yeah. be able to get out of the shower cubicle because I had these two baby capsules in there where <laughs> just like, I didn't think this one through, but at least I was clean, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, oh my gosh, I guess twins, it's not just double, it's kind of exponential, I suspect, versus one. But it, it, there's the kind of saying it takes a village to bring up a child. So maybe it takes a town or a city to bring up <laughs> twins. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, even with Jules and me, it's it's so intense with just one with just one of them. And I, and I do think that, you know, there's lots of kind of gurus and stuff, but ultimately it's what works for you and the kids in that situation is... Nobody, nobody's an expert on your kids except for you, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Or your life, right? You know, because people know, have yeah. different home situations. They do different kinds of work. I didn't run my own businesses when I first had the kids. And I wish I had because I'd have had a lot more freedom, I think. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, looking at your face, I think possibly that freedom comes with its challenges as well. <laughs> is, that, um, is that how I've aged? <laughs> <laughs> is that the number of grey hairs I have <laughs> uh, yeah I was just thinking about you know having to go out to work and leave the babies um yeah. with daycare or whatever when that was back in the day when you had to be in the office most of the time these days I think it's a it, there's a lot more flexibility with managing yeah. those things but yeah you just have to do what's right for you and nobody can see looking in 
from the outside, what you're doing to keep them alive and to keep yourself afloat? That's definitely true. We we talk a lot about balance because there's no point running the business if it means sacrificing the marriage or the relationship with Theo. So, and we're really lucky. Like living in Bratislava, we both, you know, my wife and I, we work from home. So there's no commute. And at, at 4.30 every day, it's like we are with Theo. And then, you know, most evenings we're back to work again once he's asleep. But it's very, very lucky. I think pre-COVID, it would have been difficult to, to find that balance, even with sort of running our own. I guess the advantage of you running your own business is you set your own hours. But I don't think that would have been possible pre-COVID because the whole, the whole culture was you had to be in the office. Absolutely. We're, we're very lucky to be doing what we're doing now post-COVID. It's one of the positive shifts that came out of COVID, I think, is this sense of not necessarily from organisations, but from individuals, that there is a different way that the daily grinds can carry on without you needing to commute for an hour and a half through traffic or, you know, stay till five o'clock. You can fit work around life. I quite often do the same thing as you finish work when the kids come home from school spend a few hours with them doing dinner and you know books and watching tv and all that sort of stuff that you do and then once they've gone to bed do a couple more hours worth of work um which you can't do if you're if if all of your work is based on uh in-person interactions in an office it's just impossible to to manage all of that so it's one of the positives um that's come out of um of the pandemic I think there are a couple of other ones although I suspect that's slightly contentious for people Um, but I certainly found that there's a real lack of desire to go back to pre-covid kind of ways of working even people who love going into the office they'll only go for a couple of days a week they get their fix from a couple of days a week and the rest of the time they're happy working from home I wanted to ask about when you moved to Bratislava. Was it before or after you set up My Mother Tree? It was before. So we, the story there is we'd sold the last company, Look After My Bills, Go Compare. So I was working for Go Compare. COVID hit kind of six months into that sale. And we were, I was working from home in London. We're living in Brixton. And yeah, Jules was pregnant, kind of classic COVID, COVID baby, you know, COVID pregnancy. And was it lockdown baby? I don't know what they're called. We didn't need to be in the office. Suddenly, you know, people were working from all over. And I just asked her, you know, where do you, where do you want to give birth? And she wanted to be near, near her mum in Slovakia. So we went, we left the UK November 20, 20, 2020. November 2020 and haven't looked back it's been great two two and a bit year two and well gosh two and a half years here now it's absolutely flown by so what's different about it to living in Brixton it's a lot quieter much slower pace of life like when I was in London I always had this kind of sense you know keeping up with the Joneses there was always a sense of I guess you call it FOMO but you know your mates are doing these interesting things you're like well I should be doing them with them and so the time to sort of think about what Mother Tree could be and also and just put the time into making that happen just, just wasn't on the table in London. And when we got to Bratislava, 
suddenly there was this free time to really think and start to experiment. And we kind of lived like monks for about a year, partly because of COVID, but right? you couldn't go out. That was perfect for Jules and me because we just focused on our businesses. So yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot kind of slower way of life. It's a lot greener here, which is, I think Slovakia for Europe has the most trees per person. Uh, so there's these like beautiful forests right on our doorstep. And the food, the food, like <laughs> the food tastes a lot better, which is, I wasn't expecting, but even, you know, cucumbers and tomatoes and stuff. I don't know what the British do with the food anymore, but it tastes, it tastes a lot better here. Um, you know, th- there are trade-offs. Like I, I definitely miss, miss my mates and uh, my family. Uh, but you, you know, you find, you find additional friends over here and, uh, but the main the main difference is yeah it's just a, a more relaxed pace of life. Did you grow up in London? No, I grew up in Swansea uh, in Wales. Okay. So I was uh, I'm kind of used to that smaller city, and Swansea's by the sea, right? So there's this kind of pretty laid back, pretty laid back culture there. So I'm more I'm definitely more at home where it's a bit a bit quieter. Did you, how did you end up in London then? Did you go to uni in London? Did you move there for work? Yeah, it was for work. So uh, I went to uni in Exeter and I was working for an energy company called Ovo Energy in the UK. And they had a Bristol and London office. I was in Bristol uh, commuting to London and then left ovo to launch good company which was the charity i mentioned and we launched that out of london uh so yeah moved there gosh probably 2014 2015 something like that and you said earlier that good company didn't go as well as you hoped it would so what's the story there yeah so we um we launched Good Company as a social business originally, and our aim was to address loneliness. That was the kind of reason for it to, to exist. We pivoted to a charity which unlocked about half a million pounds in funding. And we came up with this idea of uh, basically volunteers meeting with the elderly in their local area. And the kind of spin, because that exists, the spin that we put on it was the child of the elderly parent would pick the volunteer mm-hmm. so there'd be just kind of like vetting online process through the uh through the child of the of the elderly parent um it didn't work out we spent 18 months trying to prove that idea it it, it didn't get anywhere near the impact we were looking for and we ended up giving 95% of that money back and sharing the, the learnings with uh, with some loneliness charities. I get for me, the big reflections were we, we came up with the idea in a meeting room and we were sort of rigid on that idea for a long time. And now I do it the exact reverse way. For me, it's all the ideas are simply just tests for who's your target audience and how can you serve them the best? And when we actually did that towards the end of the charity, we came up with some ideas that actually were, were more impactful, would have had more impact, not the impact, still not the impact we were looking for. For us, it was about being um, being sort of nationwide, whereas the impacts we were having were kind of 
at best city level and probably more like borough level. Uh, but the really big lesson through all of it was I had this real fear of failure back then. It felt, felt like I was working with the handbrake on, which is Arsene Wenger saying, playing with the handbrake on. And I was so scared of failure. I was kind of so worried if this thing would fail. And then it did. And, you know, I, I remember very clearly crying on the on the kitchen floor and my wife sort of picking me up. But it was after that, it was this release. It was this kind of realisation that the only thing that's sort of bruised here is my ego. That's it. Uh, and actually had so like that was probably the most formative 18 months the best sort of education I could have got was those 18 months in terms of what it took to launch a business but crucially crucially understanding like it is okay to fail if you fail for the right reasons mm. if your morals and values are in the right place it is absolutely fine to test something out and fail and actually the challenge becomes how quickly can you get you know, how quickly can you prove that this idea is, is going to succeed or fail? Okay, it fails. Why did it fail? Let's iterate on that. Let's try the next idea. Um, that was the, yeah, one of the biggest lessons by far. Uh, yeah, and it kind of released this huge amount of um, just trying stuff out. Like I wrote two novels. I launched a couple of side businesses and... Uh, ended up on the founding team and look after my bills, which was this this big success story. Like, and a lot of the things I brought to that company were, were built on the, the things I learned at Good Company. That's really interesting. There's two parts to that. What I heard was, one, you felt that you had a handbrake on you. And so potentially that is, you know, that fear of failure, but also not going full tilt when you've got an instinct about something or um, you're not, not going wide enough, not being bold enough. Um, and then the other one that, you know, I think that resonates with a lot of people, that idea that you can't do something if you think that there's half a chance you're going to fail at it. But actually, that is the biggest um, box that you find yourself in, because what is failure? You know, I mean, you have a dream, you try something, you don't manage to do what you did, but you learn something and then you move on and you do something even better. Is that failure? Is that success? You know, I think I think back to that kid's book um, the, that has chicken licking, you know, about the sky falling in. Um, and I think there's that concept of, you know, you're thinking all the time about what's the worst thing that's going to happen if I try this, you know. Uh, as opposed to thinking about the best thing that will happen. Um, and it can really stop you from, it can paralyze you from doing what you, what you, what you can. A 100%, 100%. Yeah. I think the, the, you know, the fear of what sort of focusing on what's bad, it's important from a risk perspective, but if it becomes the thing you're sort of a, that's the thing you're focusing on. Yes, I, I think there's this like tendency to, if we really focus on something that's generally the thing we're gonna end up with, the kind of manifestation piece. And the, the more I kind of witness it, the more I think that is absolutely true. And so this fear of failure thing for me was, I was so scared of what would happen if this didn't work out. 
well, that's what we got. That's what we ended up with. And so, you know, you have to fo- you have to focus on what could be bad from a risk perspective. But actually, it's about holding that vision of the future and and visualizing it. And, and that's the thing you manifest, right? It's that kind of like there's a definite balance, but it's really trying to hold what the future could be in a really positive way, uh, as opposed to yeah being scared of that failure. So when you went to um, to start Mother Tree, you had all this time, you're surrounded by all these forests. Um, you know, was that what gave you the idea or was it, do you think it was something that was built up over many, many years, like a little kernel that just kind of grew slowly as you went through different companies, different ideas? So, uh, yeah, so the name Mother Tree comes from... Um, a book called Finding the Mother Tree, which is written by a scientist called Susan Simard, a Canadian. And she discovered that trees and forests and trees of different species share nutrients with each other, which I just, it completely blew my mind that you had these, what I what we'd originally thought were competitive species, you know, oak trying to outcompete beech to get the most sunlight on its leaves. They're actually cooperating they're supporting each other and it's, it's absolutely magnificent so oak will pass the nutrients that beech needs to thrive and beech will pass the nutrients that oak needs to thrive because they're both able to create different types of nutrients right their differences actually support each other and the mother trees in particular were the tended to be the biggest trees of the forest who were able to support the most other trees the seeds of the mother tree that had landed within the kind of mother tree's root range they were also able to support the most protect from the sunlight when it was too sunny give more rain when that tree needed it you know it was like they understood the support system and for me that's like fundamental to the values of mother tree the business mymothertree.com which is we want to support others to create a a vibrant healthy community you know be it reducing carbon be it getting money towards reducing the gender pay gap or promoting biodiversity we want to be the kind of sharer the one of i'm also acknowledging we are one part of a much bigger system but that if enough if enough people are kind of building that and doing good then then we will create a a really quite amazing world i think yeah i've kind of riffed riffed a bit on it but yeah the mother tree is the kind of the connector if you will i love that and i think it's a really good example of when you actually stop and look at what nature does it's incredibly complex um but very collaborative which is sort of what we're all aiming to do i think is you know, not be too simple because simple won't necessarily um, keep us all satisfied. Uh, and, you know, we live complex lives, but to do them in ways where we're not taking from others, we're actually sharing resources, sharing ideas and building that sense of community. And if you look in nature, you see that all over the place. And I think what's interesting to me about the the kind of climate action movement is that there are starting to be more examples, more positive examples of how 
nature does that and how humans can interact with that system in a way that is more regenerative and long term to give people those ideas. Mm. So, you know, the mother tree gave you the idea for an amazing company and a concept that's kind of growing. If that happens a thousand times, you know, we have the sprouting of all of these different kind of companies and different concepts that are growing these new systems. And we've learned them from nature, which is so cool. It's really cool. Like I, I, I'm a bit of a geek for this stuff. The blades of a wind turbine are shaped on the fin of a whale. It's, the, it's those kind of things where we've realized actually nature already has the answers. And, and all, you know, uh, I think, is it called biomimicry? There's a, there's a technical word for it, but basically by observing nature, we realize actually, yeah, a lot of our, a lot of our problems are already, uh, they've already solved. Because they've, they've been solved millions, for many years. Millions of years old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, trees that are, I think 330 million years old, we're 45,000 years old as a species, right? Like they have been on this planet a lot longer than us and they understand it a lot more than us, I suspect. Well, I know. So that that's been there since I was since I was twelve, since I found out about climate change in a in a geography lesson, right? Uh, I just never knew what to do about it. And so yeah, having that time post look after my bills helped me think, well, well what what can I do? What can my part be? Uh, and my wife actually came up with the idea of something called the climate challenge, which this is about a year and a half ago, which was basically groups of about eight people who took on 30 challenges over 30 days. Uh, you know, we went vegan for the day. We got rid of single-use plastic. We looked at our carbon footprint. We're just doing tasks that what can individuals kind of influence. For, and, and for me, it was great because I got to observe how people reacted to different tasks and then ask them, you know, did you do it? Did you not do it? If you didn't do it, why didn't you do it? How did it feel? Uh, you know, when you got the result, was it what you were expecting? All of those things. And that was the kind of start of Mother Tree because two tasks within that were really quite shocking. And we got consistent feedback when we realized, you know, when people realized where their banks were, in were investing and where our pensions were invested, those two tasks really woke people up because you know, you kind of realize, oh, my bank's just put 20 billion pounds into oil and gas. Well, I don't support that. Or, you know, my bank's put money into cluster bombs that have been traced to killing people. I'm definitely not in for that. And then, you you know, for me as well, I looked at my pension. First time I went to the climate challenge, first one we did, I looked at my own pension, 2% in BP and Shell, 1% in tobacco, 1% in weapons. You know, I'd never... If I had spare money to invest, which I don't right now, um, if I did, I would never put money into those areas. And every month, some of my hard-earned cash had been going there, right? So it just felt this absolute, absolute insanity that we had people who were already, you know, vegan, already quit flying, already doing these massive actions, protesting, you know, part of Extinction Rebellion, like really putting their, their sort of lives on the line. And... There was such little awareness of this massive money machine that was continuing to fund the biggest the biggest problem we've ever had. So that's where Mother Tree focused. Uh, we built the, the UK's first and only, possibly world's first and only money carbon calculator to give people that kind of transparency on exactly what their bank and their pension are doing from a carbon perspective. 
and then uh, and we've expanded that now so we now run a service which, which on an individual level actually looks at exactly where your money is the impact of that money but also where it could be in terms of not only just carbon but also biodiversity reducing the gender pay gap making sure there's a fair living wage you know reducing the um uh sort of um that sort of race race racist uh how to put it um basically making it a, a more fair and mobile society i think is the sort of positive way to to make that but making sure our money is going to places that we want for our society to actually be because we can get that if we make sure the money's going to those places yeah, it's really fascinating. I um, I think one of the things that I've been reflecting on when I was looking at um, what Mother Tree does, and you know, obviously I'm based in New Zealand, um, it's it's more difficult to find out anything about the banks and the pension funds and what have you here. Um, we need a Mother Tree New Zealand. Thank you very much, Dan. Um, next uh, next job for you. Um, uh, but one of the things I've been reflecting on is that uh, that engagement with those big systems like the pension system or the financial system um, is is something that I think individuals have lost, if we ever had lost that sense of control over. So, you know, we rely on um, algorithms and individuals in banks to give us mortgages when we want to buy a house. Um, we don't have any control over the fees that they charge for credit cards, for example. Um, they loan us money on credit cards and we're expected to feel grateful for being charged huge amounts of money on uh, on that. But actually what sits behind it is a massive financial system. Um, and I think what people are finding is that they they don't really feel comfortable with that lack of control. Um and it's a dominating relationship. It's a little bit like I describe the relationship that humans have with the planet as a relationship of dominance rather than a relationship of partnership. And it's very similar in terms of um, the money system. So, you know, it used to be, I can remember when I knew the bank manager of the local branch, they knew me, they knew my, this is when I lived in the UK in a little tiny little town in coastal Essex. Um, and it was much more of a relationship, um, whereas now I might know a couple of people in the organisations that um, provide financial services for my companies, but I wouldn't say that I get the sense that they're with me on my journey. Uh, you know, they they are just the entry point to a massive system that is very, very um, difficult for people to get their heads around unless you're in that system. Um, and very difficult to find any information out. And so you feel like you're on you're on the periphery of control. Um, and I think what Mother Tree does is it gives people that sense of you don't need to know all of this stuff to take back a little bit of that control. You're not changing the financial system. You're just choosing which part of it to engage with. Um, and that little choice gives you that sense of control. Um, that's kind of one of my reflections in terms of people's dif difficulties in getting engaged in the massive system changes that need to happen for climate action is that uh, they're closed systems and people are on the outside. Uh, they know they kind of know that, but they don't know how to get in there. Um, they don't know how to change. They don't know how to get some of that choice back. 
Yeah. Um, and they're, they're almost deliberately closed systems, right? Like the banks aren't forthcoming, certainly the British banks that we've looked at aren't forthcoming in terms of where they're investing. They don't want that scrutiny. And yet, as an individual, one of our biggest powers is making sure where at least our money isn't going to places that that are opaque in where they're investing. And when we peel back that layer, are investing heavily in fossil fuel, just as one example. Uh, so yeah, I could I could not agree I could not agree more. And actually, and again, I don't know about the New Zealand system, but it's easier to switch than ever before in the UK. And what we're realizing is things like interest rates are actually better in greener banks. So yeah, if you make more money by going to the banks that are doing better for the world. So suddenly it's like this form of activism, but you also get all the upside from it as well. Uh, so I just think it's this magnificent area and we just need more kind of more awareness of it, more people waking up and realizing actually, you know, I don't have to stick to the bank that I was with at 18 because they gave me a free rail card. And actually the service is pretty crappy, but I'm going to stick it out because that's what I know. It's like, well, as you know, you can get better service, better interest rate and create the kind of world you want to live in, you want to retire into. Mm. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, I think some of it, and I and I suspect that, um, you know, your companies are focused on this, is people are really time poor. Um, and they also feel like maybe they don't know enough. You know, I don't know how global financial institutions work. Do I ever want to? No. Um, I couldn't think of anything more boring. That's my personality. Do I want to know that whatever money um, I have is being used for ethical um, purposes? Absolutely. How am I going to find that information out in a, in a way that's easy for me to understand and doesn't take me months and months of delving and asking questions and all of that sort of stuff, you know? Um, so services that kind of cut through that, I think are, are amazing for people who want to do something. They just don't know where to start. They don't have the time. They're really busy. You know, they don't think it's going to make any impact anyway or whatever, but it does make an impact. And, and I think, you know, your stats that you, you're kind of regularly publishing, publicizing are really um, a visible, uh, explanation around actually money talks um and you might have 10 10 pounds or you know ten dollars in the bank but if a hundred people use their ten dollars in a different kind of way then it starts to get noticed it starts to have an impact that's that's exactly it there's some really interesting uh things to sort of themes to pick up on there so Firstly, the money absolutely does have an impact. If we think about the language that CEOs understand, they look at the number of accounts that are open with that bank. With that bank, that's one of their stats, right? That tells them if they have people depositing money, then they can lend money to other practices, and they lend money to one of the things they some banks do is they lend money to fossil fuel. So if the CEO sees that number of accounts falling, they are going to take action. They're going to they're going to want to understand why is that why is that happening. Uh, so that is that is just a great signal to send to the market, even if you have one pound in an account, you know, make sure that that account is in a in a green bank. Then the second thing is, yeah, time. We are time poor, probably more than we've ever been. We have more information in our pocket and our phone than you know we've ever had access to before. It's easy to get than ever before. But the flip side of that is we have less time because we're trying to sort of figure out where to actually focus our time, given all of that information. 
And see, so, yeah, everything we do at Mother Tree is about how can we give people genuine clarity, confidence, and control without them having to spend, you know, more than sort of 10, 15 minutes to get across this, probably maximum, maximum amount of time. So yeah, we're really kind of iterating and the people we work with, our clients, everything we do is how can we save them time, save them money and save them carbon. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of game we're in. Uh, but yeah, I think, you, I think you summed it up really well. It's kind of, we're time poor and it's very hard to get that clarity, but not impossible. Uh, and then it's about, yeah, how do we send the right signals to the market to say we, we no longer stand for this? So what's what are what are the next ideas you've got? Because you strike me as a bit of an ideas factory. Um, as you're staring at the forests or running after Theo, you know, there's different there's different things growing. So what are some of the things that you think are ripe for um, more action or more impact? Yeah, the thing I'd love to well, the thing we're building uh, is we want to make it sort of i start with the mission i'd love to get to a point where with a couple of minutes of of input from a customer we can give them real clarity across their whole lifestyle what's their impact not just carbon carbon is just one part of the equation but also things like biodiversity and reducing gen gender pay gap etc um and not only give them that clarity but then work with them to switch to providers that are actually better for the environment, match their values and save them money and save them time, right? And, and actually what we're realizing is we're unlocking that in a series of areas already, banking, pensions, insurance, uh, energy, home improvement. Those areas are already there in terms of savings, both in time, money and carbon. And so that's what we're, we're building. That's what we're iterating on. Uh, ultimately that's the service like I'd love someone to come in and just be like right here are the actions you need to take we're going to do those actions for you oh by the way like your life's going to be way better for it and you're going to be doing better for your for the planet so we're not going to retire into a place that's on fire we're going to retire into a place we can actually enjoy and thrive in that's uh that's the goal what does that mean so I think that's the kind of vision. What does that mean in terms of the sort of staircase to get there? What we're, all we're doing is kind of building the next stair each time. So we're really clear on banks. We're really clear on pensions. The next one for me is insurance. Insurance is fascinating because, you know, a coal mine could have all the funding it needs to get going. But if it doesn't get the insurance, it's not going to happen. And so the dynamic's slightly different in insurance but we've already started looking at, okay, who are the insurers who are actively insuring bad practices? It doesn't matter about the funding. <laughs> Those projects aren't going to happen. And suddenly we build up a kind of portfolio of, uh, you know, you've got your money going to the right places. You've got your insurance going to the right places. And we're putting pressure on fossil fuel in a significant way to then flip to now into a renewable energy future. Uh, so for me, yeah, insurance is the next sta staircase to, uh, to make that happen. I realized my internet said there's bad connections. So if you missed anything, let me know. Yeah, um, I think we're okay. We missed a little bit, but actually you covered it off in something else that you said. Um, so, <laughs> so I think we're okay. I was just reflecting. I think what you're building is an alternative system. And I'm interested in that because all of the research that I am doing about 
research. All of the people that I'm listening to, I count that as research. You know, it's how I learn. I learn from other people. Um, where everything's going is that the systems that we live and work within fundamentally will not deliver the, the future that we need them to deliver. So we have to create alternative shadow systems um, that people start to move towards and then we can dismantle the systems that we rely on. You know, it's really, really difficult for people in their everyday lives to think about, you know, breaking a system that they rely on if there's not an alternative. Um, and, you know, you can see it when you think about um, democracies breaking down. Um, the alternative is not necessarily better. Um, than the democracy and and people think that way about a lot of things like the energy system the school the education system the health system you know people get paralyzed because they think well we can't just we can't just stop this system we, uh, when we have nothing else um but if you can create shadow systems that are better and that are built on different foundations and you can encourage people to move over to those then you can dismantle and stop the the systems that we've come to rely on that are, are so negative and damaging because you've got an alternative that keeps life kind of going on. It's a little bit the same around electric cars, you know, and EVs. I know there's a huge debate. It gets very, very technical about, you know, cobalt mining and, and you know, what do you do with, uh, you know, solar panels when they've come to the end of their life? We haven't solved all of those problems. Um, but the point of those systems is that they are an alternative. You can move from coal-fired um you know at power stations to solar energy um and then you can dismantle the coal fire um ones then you know you haven't solved all the problems because you've still got other issues with what do you do with recycling or whatever but if you don't have any of that then people will stick with what they have because they have to carry on with their daily lives um so it's one of those th things i think where perfection is the enemy of actually making progress and it sounds to me like picking off various systems over time and saying, OK, we can do this in a better way. We can grow the ones that are doing it in a better way and we can divert customers to those ones. And, you know, um, means that once you've got enough of that momentum, actually, those other systems will fail anyway. Um, but you but you've you've carried on. You've got sustainable systems in place already. I think I think that's absolutely right. And. You know, there is this fear, let's just take oil and gas. There is this fear of what happens if we lose, you know, we shut down oil and gas in the UK. Does that mean prices spike? Does it mean I, I can still light and heat my home? The truth is like, yes, we have the systems in place to handle that already. Like wind and solar, uh, we have the technology and the infrastructure to make that happen. Battery technology is expensive because wind and solar is in intermittent, but the nuclear plays an important role. And, it, and you know, despite the uh, sort of issues there's, there's been around nuclear, it is a part of the energy transition. So the systems are already there. And I think partly it's, it's painting a, a vision, a future of actually our lives are going to be better for moving to these systems. We'll have cleaner air. There'll be less, um, you know, kind of, issues around air pollution for people will have uh in in theory and this should hold up cheaper energy because it's already cheaper to to produce uh wind and solar in the uk um the batteries aren't but that technology is getting there so it will be cheaper 
And in many ways, you can kind of live a guilt-free life in terms of the electricity. We're kind of constantly turning off lights. Actually, if it's coming from a green source, that becomes slightly less important, right? Like, yes, turn them off so that the, the insects don't get confused at night. But you can you can party and enjoy it because it's coming from a source that's clean, right? So there are there are these upsides. Actually, we can genuinely live the same or even better standard of life by making the transition. So I think partly it's the story that we're saying is often what I hear from the kind of oil and gas uh, supporters is, oh, you know, we'll be completely screwed. The system relies on it. it. It does, but not entirely, and it doesn't have to. And we have the systems in place to already replace it. And, and you know, from a British perspective, we often hear, oh, we have to import a lot of things. It could be completely self-sustained. Like it's with British, British energy. Oh, there's so many arguments as to why things won't work and and most of them you stick a pin in them and the balloon deflates immediately um uh, particularly if you ask the right questions or you take the right stance um i'm all for for guilt-free energy we have um solar solar panels and a battery that cost a lot of money um and an electric car um, which is charged using the solar energy. So when I take a journey to go and do something in the car when it's raining or, you know, whatever, um, I do feel that little glow of, you know, I made this energy um, in, a, in a kind of green way. Um, I can I can charge the car back up next time there's a sunny day. The battery's got a lot of, and, you know, it's not costing me a thing. Um, because I can go days and days and days, even in winter, without um, needing to take from the grid. Um, so you do get that little glow, that little green glow, if um, if you like. Um, I think the challenge for people is that it takes an investment to get to that. Um, and, you know, it's the same for um, these big systems. It takes a whole lot of money. Um, some governments are saying, well, that's where we should be spending our money. And they're going for it um, because they're thinking generationally. They're not thinking of the next election. Um, you know, we take a seven generation principle approach in the companies that I run and, and in personally in our family. So we're always thinking about, you know, if we're the second generation because our parents are still alive, then, you know, what do we want to put in place for six generations from now? And how are we thinking about that in what in what we're doing? Governments who are driven by election cycles um, are thinking in two or three years, you know, what can I do to get me back into power? Um, and, you know, that's not to say that they're not trying to do stuff in terms of climate action, but it's the wrong time frame, because by the time you've spent a whole lot of money and investment in some of these different systems, the elections come and gone. Um, and you're either in power or you're not. And if you're not in power, then guess what? That funding often gets pulled onto different things. Um, so that's, you know, that's one of those systems where, you know, we built those systems. We built election cycles. Uh, we can change election cycles. We built, you know, the foundations by which uh, investments are kind of decided on and measured. Um, we can change. We can change them. Um, yeah. But it's a little bit like that, you know, that question of lack of control in relation to money. When our money's in a bank, we think of it as ours. But if the bank decides to charge us for something, 
we think that they're entitled to do that without questioning it. Uh, and it's a little bit the same when it comes to big investment in those big systems. We think it's okay because we built them like that and we've allowed ourselves to be taken out of that dialogue. Well, that that's exactly it. I mean, let's take pensions. 50% of all of the money in the world is in pensions. Like everything in property, in stocks and shares, if we grouped up all the money in the world, 50% is in pensions. And yet... We have such little awareness of what our own pension is doing. So even just putting that lever, even just making sure our pension's in the right place suddenly has quite a big ripple effect in terms of certainly how that money's invested. And, and you know, these systems are complex. They've been built up uh, over many generations by people way, way more intelligent than me. Uh, so it, you know, it is, it is, you know, we talk about markets and things and these, these like big ideas, but ultimately from, from an individual perspective, you know, if we just made sure our own money, our own actions were, were in line with, let's say a 1.5 degree world. And if enough of us did that, that is a market, right? It's really simple in, in many ways, as long as like what I do is, is incongruent with, with my, my values and, and how I want the world to be and enough of the people get on board, then, then we've created a market. We can change that system. So um, one last question, because we're almost out of time. Um, you are such a positive person. Every time I see you, you're smiling, you're enthusiastic. How do you keep so cheerful and optimistic? Uh, it's definitely a journey, right? If you ask my wife, she says it's not, it's not always ten out of ten with me, and like she'd be right. Uh, I um, I don't know. I think I really, I really like I, how to put this. I really enjoy making positive stuff happen. I get a. Uh, a real sense when the when the purpose and the mission is clear like i absolutely this is what i enjoy i enjoy sort of problem solving i enjoy working with other people to make to make good things happen uh, and i've been on the other side of that fence when i haven't got any purpose or when when i'm working on something that i just don't see as as having a positive impact so like i'm uh i'm pretty passive i'm pretty uh you know can be quite down at times so yeah for me often it comes down to purpose and yeah it just it could not be clear enough right now and you know that's that's about uh positive relationship with with my wife and my son and you know the work that I do with mother tree making sure we we fight to live a live in a healthier thriving planet thank you that's nice that's lovely oh, thank you. i've never really examined why why i'm so positive it seems really weird to go to look so internal i just keep going you know on that on that kind of conveyor belt i guess yeah i mean i do think purpose matters so much i know when we talked um a couple oh, a couple of months ago maybe now um, and you were asking me about why I set humans at work up, you know, what was, what was the thing that drove me? 
um, that sense of there's a value in this um, that I feel so strongly about that it doesn't matter whether it is successful in anybody else's eyes. If I do it and I do it to the best of my ability, I'll feel satisfied because of that sense of purpose. Um, it's such an internal drive and it takes you away from necessarily being so concerned about other people's views on what you're doing or how you're doing it, which gives you a sense of freedom. You know, you step outside that box that people try and put you in, um, the world's your oyster. Um, I don't, I never know why we use that, um, saying because, uh, why would you want to be in an oyster? Um, but anyway, <laughs> Um, I've just now I'm just going to have to look that up and work out where on earth that has come from. I suppose it's come from the idea that the pearl is created in an oyster, but it's really weird saying um, now that I've well, thought about it. Really oysters. I'm ne I'm, I can't eat seafood. I can't eat shellfish because I'm allergic. So I'd never try and, you know, try to eat an oyster anyway. Um, but, you know, this idea that you let yourself be put into limited limited spheres um, because of other people's views on what you should and shouldn't be doing. And I think if you have that real sense of internal purpose, you smash through those limitations. You just kind of ignore them or you step over them and you just keep going anyway. And that fills you with confidence and an inner fire that gets you up every day. Yeah, I, I love the way you put that. Uh... I think that's so right. And, and and often I'm kind of realizing it's a the box that they've put me in is a reflection on them more than it's a reflection on me. Yeah, completely, completely. But we listen quite often more to other people than we do to ourselves. Um, and, you know, maybe it's an age thing. I don't think you necessarily get wiser as you get older, but I think you do learn through trial and error and you know hard knocks that uh you do need to be true to yourself and value you know what your inner voice is telling you is the right thing to to value your gut instinct in relation to decisions or situations um and I think that comes with the confidence and the scars of um trying different things um, that can come at any age, but certainly I think it comes from those experiences. And once you learn to value yourself as much as you value other people's opinions, um, then you start to see that you can be whatever you want to be. That sounds really trite, but I think it it's actually, you know, it's it's really true. You don't have to be what society tells you you should be. You can actually be whatever you want to be, so long as that is not something that's going to do damage to to other people you know let's be clear you can't be a serial killer just because you want to be um but you can be whatever you want to be and do whatever you want to do if that's what drives you yeah i think i think that's that's it and you know i, I think we have a a fear in society of failure to come back to that to that point which means lots of you know lots of people me included in my 20s play it safe but actually, you know, if we if we commit, if we take risks with our values in the right place, as you said, you know, we're not harming other people and we're willing to go through that painful experience. And often it's the fear of failure, not the failure itself that hurts. It's the thought of it, not the actual action. 
But when we actually go through it, you know, certainly for me, I learned something about myself. And, you know, you do that enough times, you kind of, yeah, you build up those scars, that experience. And I'll, I'll continue to get those for, absolutely, you know, we're, uh, it's just part of the fun of it, I think. And I certainly found, you know, I'm not someone who can work in a, in a, in a corporate job in a kind of big, big, uh, big company environment because you're kind of hiding, right? I was, I found I was kind of hiding and whereas for mother tree, every single day counts, you know, every single day, there's something we're going to find out that's new or any challenge or any problem to solve. That's exciting. That's where I want to be. And it's this kind of idea of like a commit, take the risk, be fully in, just experience it for six months or whatever it is. But also accept that's not that's not the permanent thing, right? That's not what we're boxed in for. We can always then change if, and we'll learn through that experience, which I only kind of realized in my late twenties that I started to do that. But yeah, that that that's uh, that was really really game changing for me. Those kind of you know commit, take the risk, really really commit to it for a period of time and experience it. But also accept like you are not defined by what happens in those six months or whatever time span you give it. Hey, listen, I know um, we have been talking for over an hour um, and I'm pretty sure we could talk for many more hours, um, but you've got businesses to run. Um, and so I just wanted to say thank you so much. I know it's been a few months in the making this podcast and we've had a few internet glitches, um, but that's just the way of the world. Um, that's what working life is like for humans like us. Um, so I wanted to say thank you so much. Really, really interesting um, to reflect on what you have done and what's driving you and what Mother Tree is doing. And, you know, if you do want to set up a Mother Tree uh, for Australia, New Zealand, uh, you know, I would definitely be one of your first customers. Oh, Jules, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute joy. I really appreciate being on the podcast uh would love to set up mother tree for australia new zealand we're probably a year or two away from that yet but i'll definitely definitely let you know when we're uh when we're down under would uh would love to would love to make that happen and um yeah thank you so so much you, you ask such thought-provoking questions it's really it's really fascinating the kind of parallels you make between family and work I hadn't really thought about that before. And also our internal motivation hadn't really reflected on. So um, yeah, I really appreciate this thoughtful, the, the really thoughtful um, yeah, questions and time you put into this. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks as always to the generosity of our delightful guests. The stories of how others have faced up to their challenges can help give all of us courage to keep going with our own. For more great episodes, blogs, learning packages, go to the humansatwork.org website.